In July of 1863, Major General Henry Halleck posed a question to a fellow Major General, one who was encamped along the Big Black River down in Mississippi. Asked about the continued depth of Confederate resistance after the fall of Vicksburg, William Tecumseh Sherman answered that he thought Confederate belligerence would continue until Southerners were made to suffer for a conflict he firmly believed they started. As he put it, war is upon us. None can deny it. I would not coax them or meet them halfway, but make them so sick of war that generations would pass away before they would again appeal to it. By the end of 1864, after his capture and firing of Atlanta and his 60-mile-wide path of destruction across Georgia, Sherman most certainly was doing his part to make Southerners sick of the war. And now, as January gave way to February in 1865, he was about to make them even sicker. This is the story of Sherman's march north from Savannah. This is the story of his Carolina's campaign. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. For Major General William Tecumseh Sherman, it had been an improbable and incredible journey. At the first battle of Bull Run, he commanded a brigade, and on August the 7th, 1861, became the seventh highest ranking brigadier general of volunteers, 11 places ahead of a West Pointer by the name of Ulysses S. Grant. Transferred to Kentucky, Reporters there portrayed Sherman as unstable and even mentally deranged. Henry Halleck rescued him by bringing him to St. Louis and assisted in giving him command of a division. At the Battle of Shiloh, he narrowly averted disaster and, thanks to his crises management, was promoted to Major General to rank from May 1, 1862. Soon after, he conducted operations up and down the Mississippi River, at Chickasaw Bluffs, Arkansas Post, and in the siege and capture of Vicksburg. Then came action at Chattanooga, and upon Grant's promotion to General-in-Chief, Sherman assumed command of all troops in the Western Theater. There was the Meridian Campaign in Mississippi, and then the campaigns that carved his legacy— the first began May 7, 1864, when his force left Chattanooga and began a march of 130 miles over rough terrain to Atlanta. It took 128 days, but on September the 2nd, his men occupied the Confederate city that was second most in importance to Richmond. Atlanta's occupation was more than a military victory. It was political as well. It helped to ensure the re-election of Abraham Lincoln. One blow landed, he wanted to land another. 
On November the 16th, he began the march that is most closely associated with his name and career, the March to the Sea. In a destructive fan that spread some 40 to 60 miles, his force began a march of 275 miles. And 36 days later, on December the 21st, 1864, his men occupied Savannah, Georgia. There, rather than be transferred with his force to Virginia to help Grant with Lee at Petersburg, the general-in-chief gave his blessing for Sherman's plan to cross into the Palmetto State and begin yet another campaign, one driven by a sense of payback and one that would bring the American Civil War home to those in particularly South and North Carolina. That is the story we now spin, the Carolinas campaign. Of the 11 states that comprised the Confederacy, the one most hated by those in the North, and also the one whose occupation was most eagerly anticipated, was indeed South Carolina. The Palmetto State was the birthplace of secession and the first shots of the war. Its fire breathers were held responsible for both, and so... Many in blue held the state accountable for all the death, destruction, misery, and discomfort of the last four years. Those men in Savannah craved retribution. Quite honestly, so did their commander. On Christmas Eve, Major General Sherman wrote to Chief of Staff Major General Henry Halleck in Washington City. He wrote, The whole army is burning with an insatiable desire to wreak vengeance upon South Carolina. I almost tremble at her fate, but feel that she deserves all that seems in store for her. Earlier, when he was making his case to launch the campaign, he wrote to his friend and commanding officer Grant, With Savannah in our possession, at some future time, if not now, we can punish South Carolina as she deserves. I do sincerely believe that the whole United States, North and South, would rejoice to have this army turned loose on South Carolina, to devastate that state in the manner we have done in Georgia, and it would have a direct and immediate bearing on your campaign in Virginia." The man wielding total war was convinced that the more damage he did in the heart of Dixie, the weaker Lee's army would become at Petersburg. And almost every man in his command believed the same. We should note that in their recently completed march to the sea, the common soldier often showed a certain objectivity toward their enemy. Yes, they inflicted great destruction, but for the most part, did so without true malice. South Carolina would be different. As one soldier from Illinois put it, I want to see the long-deferred chastisement begin. If we don't purify South Carolina, it will be because we can't get a light. And South Carolinians were all too aware of what awaited them. Representative of all those filled with dread and horror, a 17-year-old girl in Columbia noted in her journal, They are planning to hurl destruction upon the state they hate most of all. And Sherman, the brute, avows his intentions of converting South Carolina into a wilderness. It is true that Sherman understood the psychological power of fear, and he brandished it. To Grant, he wrote with great understatement, 
I observe the enemy has some respect for my name. Up at City Point, Virginia, Grant more and more got his military arms around the possible beneficial consequences of a campaign into the state that was home to John C. Calhoun. His original plan to transport Sherman's force to Virginia would have taken some two months. That time, he reasoned, would be better spent striking the Carolinas to, as he put it, disorganize the South and prevent the organization of new armies from their broken fragments. Grant gave more than his mental support. He issued orders to ensure Sherman's success. To see, he sent a division from the Union 19th Corps to garrison Savannah so Sherman could move with all his veterans. And Major General John M. Schofield's 23rd Corps was detached from the Army of the Cumberland, which had just contributed in the smashing of John Bell Hood's Confederate Army of Tennessee at Nashville. Schofield's task was to occupy Wilmington, North Carolina, then move inland to Goldsboro, roughly halfway between Savannah and Richmond. After repairing the railroad to Goldsboro and creating a supply base there, he and his 20,000 would join Sherman's force for the potential drive through North Carolina to Virginia. As Sherman planned his new campaign, his mind drifted back to earlier days when he was stationed in South Carolina. He had been ordered there right after his graduation from West Point. He remembered the low, lying, swampy terrain of the low country. He knew what rain could do to existing roads and how every stream, river, and swamp would swell. And that's exactly what Sherman and his force got. Heavy rain. Enough to delay the advance some two weeks. To counter, Sherman realized that most important to his success, other than his infantry, cavalry, and artillery, would be his Pioneer Corps, which would repair and build roads and bridges. Meanwhile, the Confederacy prepared to resist. Head of the Confederate Military Division of the West, General P.G.T. Beauregard, raced to pull an opposing force together. The nearest were some 8,000 men just north of Savannah at Port Royal Sound, South Carolina. And they were under the man who recently evacuated Savannah back in December, Lieutenant General William J. Hardy. Beauregard also had 3,000 men who were state militia defending Charleston. Up the coast, there were some 6,500 at Wilmington, commanded by General Braxton Bragg. And then headquartered at Augusta, Georgia, Major General Daniel Harvey Hill blocked Sherman's inland route with three divisions of Joe Wheeler's roving cavalry and some 1,400 Georgia militia, who by state law were prohibited from leaving the state. To this quilt-patch-like resistance, Beauregard also hoped to add remnants of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, still licking its wounds after the drubbing it had taken at Franklin and Nashville. Of its some 40,000, fewer than half remained. Some 11,000 were ordered to move east by rail to Augusta. Up around Petersburg, Virginia, even R.E. Lee understood the gravity of the situation. He reluctantly reassigned South Carolina native Lieutenant General Wade Hampton and one division of his cavalry. 
The logistics for this was tough during any year of the war, but by 1864, with a crumbling Confederate infrastructure, the task was Herculean. If all could be assembled, Beauregard would still have fewer than 30,000, and Sherman, once Schofield joined him in Goldsboro, North Carolina, would total 70,000-plus. As we alluded earlier, Sherman hoped to move in mid-January, but the rains came. The lowlands filled, and Sherman himself experienced doubts about what he proposed to do. When he moved, he first had to do what he did in Georgia, confuse the enemy as to his true objectives. And like his march to the sea, he divided his force into two familiar wings. The left, under Major General Henry W. Slocum, was made up of the 14th and 20th Union Corps. This wing was to move northwest to threaten Augusta. The right was again under Old Prayer Book, Major General Oliver Otis Howard, and he had the 15th and 17th Federal Corps. He was to move northeast toward Charleston. Essentially, Sherman's total force of some 60,000 would move in a Y with its two wings left and right, and the stem or center made up of reserves ready to reinforce either wing. Interestingly, the commanding general's objective was neither Augusta nor Charleston, but South Carolina state capital, Columbia, 130 miles due north. The task made all the tougher by the rain we mentioned, the heaviest in 20 years. So much so, the road to the Savannah River, the first of several water barriers, was said to be navigable only in boats. That stopped Slocum's wing for 10 days. It was not until February the 5th that Sherman's left wing crossed the Savannah River. His right wing was a different story, for before the rains came, most of that wing's 17th Corps, under Major General Francis Preston Blair, Jr., had moved by ship some 30 miles up the coast to Beaufort, South Carolina. Major General John A. Logan's 15th Corps followed by land and sea. So, by the end of January, Howard's wing reassembled at Pocataligo, South Carolina, which was some 35 miles inland. United, the wing moved out on Wednesday, February the 1st, and immediately had to deal with flooded land and swollen streams that crisscrossed the terrain. Howard's men dubbed the landscape Frog's Heaven. Sherman compared the conditions to a 4th of July oration, only knee-deep but spread out all over creation. The water was not only knee-deep, but up to one's chest, and men had to push through it at times for miles. Then, the ooze underneath, draft animals struggled. Unlike the march through Georgia, Sherman was fully aware that his men could not forage as they had before. Until he reached a base where he could be supplied, he needed a large wagon train. So he carried about 2,500 wagons and 600 ambulances. Add 68 guns, and his train stretched 25 miles, all churning and slopping their way through water and soup-like mud. To assist, pioneers corduroyed roads, 
Trees were felled, logs were cut, trimmed, flattened on one side, and laid across the roads to try to provide a solid surface. Saplings were placed between the logs. Despite all these hardships, Sherman's wave relentlessly rolled on, and with such speed, given the conditions, that Confederate command was stunned. William Hardy said later, I wouldn't believed it if I hadn't seen it happen. General Joseph E. Johnston added, When I learned that Sherman's army was marching through the Salk Swamp, making its own corduroy roads at the rate of a dozen miles a day or more, and bringing its artillery with it, I made up my mind that there had been no such army in existence since the days of Julius Caesar. And perhaps the greatest accolade came from a Confederate prisoner, who said that if Sherman's men were sent to hell, they'd corduroy it and march on. The small towns of southern South Carolina were the first to feel the wrath and fury of Sherman's drive. Hardyville, just across the Savannah River, was burned to the ground. A Sergeant Bull of the 123rd New York remembered that on February the 4th, he camped on the grounds of a plantation. He remembered that though the mansion stood, it had been completely wrecked. The next day, he entered the village Robertsville, and as he put it, now consisting chiefly of chimneys and ash heaps. On that same day, Brigadier General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick and his cavalry hit Barnwell, South Carolina, a prosperous little community of some 400. The village had several churches, public buildings, a woman's seminary, and a Masonic lodge. All went up in flames. One Union soldier suggested that Barnwell's name be changed to Burnwell. The same blackened fate fell to Lawtonville, Gramsville, Gallisonville, McPhersonville, Blackville, Midway, Orangeburg, and Lexington, all torched and left in ruin. Kilpatrick never once denied the rumor that he had ordered the saddlebags of his command to be filled with matches for the campaign. A Mrs. Alfred P. Aldrich, mistress of one of the plantations near Barnwell, described the arrival of Kilpatrick's cavalry. They came pouring in at every door and began ripping the locks from bureaus and wardrobes seeking gold, silver, and jewels. Finding nothing to satisfy their cupidity thus far, they began turning over mattresses, tearing open feather beds, and scattering the contents in the wildest confusion. Then they found alcohol. The whiskey, she continued, seemed to infuriate and rouse all their evil passions so that the work of destruction began in earnest. Tables were knocked over, lamps and the kerosene inside them thrown over carpets and mattings, furniture of all sorts broken, a guitar and a violin smashed. In the first three weeks of the campaign, a dozen communities were ransacked and torched. Even the countryside was not overlooked. Sherman's foragers, when finally he could use them, were mostly at fault. At first, as he had in Georgia, Sherman tried to control the foraging. Each brigade sent out parties under the command of an officer to demand supplies from civilians, but the task proved too great. Regiments began to fend for themselves. 
Each morning, they sent out parties to scour the countryside and return each night with food. The men who usually made up those parties consisted of those who sought independence and chafed under discipline, called bummers. They repeatedly volunteered for the duty. In truth, many were mere renegades, more renegades than soldiers, hard men who cared little about from whom they took or stole. Most turned their heads to this kind of warfare, but there were a few who, like in Georgia, were not proud of it. Despite the concern by some officers and men, their commanding officer was quite satisfied and had a rather unique perspective on their work. As Sherman put it, they are organized for a very useful purpose and are from the adventurous spirits who are always found in the ranks and are indispensable in feeding troops when compelled, like my army, to live off the country. To paraphrase historian Charles Edmund Vetter in his 1992 work Sherman, Merchant of Terror, Advocate of Peace, he also understood they were doing their part in ripping apart the psychological and sociological heart of the enemy. Because they were so effective and so notorious, they were noticed by others as well. Roaming Confederate cavalry made bombers prime targets. Usually isolated in their foraging, there were instances when incensed southern groups fell upon them. On occasion, Union soldiers found bombers strung up with throats cut. Often pinned to their clothing were the words, death to all foragers. That being said, Joe Wheeler's Confederate cavalry were not shining knights either. For the last nine months, they too had lived off the land, and their method sometimes left Southerners wondering who were worse. Such was the nature of being a civilian, and caught between a vengeful enemy full of hate and desperate last resort defenders. Such was the nature of innocence, caught between two forces in the last days of a long, terrible civil war. And there were many just like that living in the capital of South Carolina. Columbia was an elegant city, one also overcrowded. Few expected the war to find Columbia, so it had become a haven for refugees. In two years, the city had increased from eight to about 20,000 people. Not only the seat of state government, Columbia was also a major railroad and manufacturing center, all the more worthy for Sherman's military attention. Wheeler's Confederate cavalry rode into town Thursday, February 16th. Its intention was to defend the city. Instead, as one Southerner reported it, they proceeded to break into the stores along Main Street and rob them of their contents. After skirmishing with the advance guard of Sherman's force, Confederate cavalrymen then rode out of town, many with stolen goods. The next day, Friday the 17th, men in blue entered Columbia. Mayor Thomas J. Goodwin met with Sherman that morning and received assurance that the citizens and their property would be respected. That promise was not kept. And so the controversy begins. One of the first units to arrive was an all-Iowa brigade of the 15th Corps led by Colonel George A. Stone. Exhausted, hungry, and thirsty, they had marched for 24 hours and were ordered to be the provost guard. One of their officers noted what happened. 
some foolish persons thinking to please the soldiers, brought out whiskey by the pailfuls. And before the superior officers were aware of it, a good many of Stone's brigade were intoxicated. The unit was quickly relieved and the inebriated arrested, but more whiskey was found. By nightfall, as 15th Corps Commander John Logan noted, the citizens had so crazed our men with liquor that it was impossible to control them. Wing Commander Slocum added, a drunken soldier with a musket in one hand and a match in the other is not a pleasant visitor to have about the house on a dark, windy night. Not surprisingly, fires began. Some men fought them. Some fed them. 17-year-old Emma LeConte wrote, By the red glare we could watch the wrenches walking, generally staggering, back and forth from camp to town, shouting, hurrahing, cursing South Carolina, swearing, blaspheming, singing ribald songs and using such obscene language that we were forced to go indoors. The fires that night are still hotly debated. Of course, Confederates blame Sherman, his army, and its lack of discipline and control. Wade Hampton was certain that Sherman had, as he put it, burned the city to the ground deliberately, systematically, and atrociously. Sherman, in turn, claimed the fires were already burning when his men arrived, and Hampton and his men must accept responsibility for setting them. Sherman maintained that Hampton's men set fires to bales of cotton to keep them out of federal hands, and high winds consequently spread the flames. One of the most comprehensive studies of that night can be found in Sherman and the Burning of Columbia by Marion Lucas. He concludes there were multiple factors and that there was not one fire but a series Lucas's research leads him to believe fires began with bales of cotton ignited by Hampton's men as they evacuated the city. Though city firefighters and some Union troops tried to control the fires, extremely high winds hampered their efforts. Those winds carried burning cotton to other parts of the business district, and new fires began. Then, more fires were started by prisoners released from jails, jubilant African Americans, and poorly led and irresponsible federal soldiers. As another noted Civil War historian, Bell Irvin Wiley, stated, The principal demons in the drama were cotton, whiskey, and wind. An appalled Captain Orlando M. Poe, who was Sherman's chief engineer, wrote, the burning houses lighting up the faces of shrieking women, terrified children, and frantic, raving, drunken men formed a scene which no man of the slightest sensibility wants to witness a second time. Indeed, it was something like looking through the gates to hell itself. There is evidence federal authorities did try to gain control of the situation. A brigade dashed into the city with instructions to arrest all disorderly soldiers. Sherman ordered bucket brigades to rooftops, but the fires raged all night and into the morning until the winds died down. Columbia, South Carolina was in ruins. By one count, 458 buildings had burned and thousands of Columbians, mostly women and children, were without shelter. Mayor Goodwin stated, Two-thirds of the city is in ashes. 
And that was before Sherman ordered the destruction of those structures still standing that were of military value. Over the next two days, his men added to the hellish scene by destroying warehouses, public buildings, and railroad properties. Later, Sherman offered one final comment about the disaster when he wrote, Though I never ordered it and never wished it, I have never shed any tears over the event because I believe that it hastened what we all fought for, the end of the war. Today, there are traces from that night, February 17th, 18th. Six bronze stars placed where Capitol shells struck South Carolina's state house. Still there, as if to say, don't ever forget. And for South Carolina and the Confederacy, that Friday held double disastrous consequences. For about 100 miles to the southeast, southern troops evacuated Charleston. With Union forces holding central South Carolina and now threatening Wilmington, North Carolina, the so-called cradle of secession was cut off and could not be defended any longer. The longest siege in North American history ended, and like Columbia, fires also claimed the city of Charleston. On Monday the 20th, Sherman marched out of Columbia and headed in a northerly direction, again in two wings. Wanting Confederate authorities to worry that Charlotte, North Carolina might be a federal objective, he had one column head to Winsboro, Camden, and Sherraw. And once again, as they did, federal soldiers left a trail of blackened destruction. It was while in camp at Sheraw, a Union Lieutenant George Wise was within earshot of an animated conversation between Sherman and a number of his generals. Their discussion revolved around secession and the need for immediate use of force against violators of the law. Wise remembered and recorded Sherman's comment that, when the rebels took Sumter, an army ought to have been sent against Charleston and every building burned and leveled to the ground. More than this, I would have killed every man, woman, and child found in it. Wise also remembered Sherman following up that with, These people are possessed with devils, and when we fight the devil, we must fight fire with fire. Let South Carolina take warning for it ever becomes necessary to come to her again to put down another rebellion of her people, they will see war such as they never dreamed of before. As his two wings pushed on, organized Confederate opposition was for all purposes non-existent. An uncertain and ailing Beauregard ordered all available forces to fall back to North Carolina. Meanwhile, tough decisions were being made in Virginia. Lee, at Petersburg, and the Confederate Congress in Richmond reinstated Joseph E. Johnston to head all Confederate forces opposing Sherman. On the 23rd of February, a Thursday, he reluctantly accepted the post but confessed to an aide, it is too late. His reinstatement lifted Southern troop morale, and though dispirited, Johnston dutifully began to pull forces together. It proved tough for many Georgians who were concerned about families in the destructive wake of Sherman's march to the sea and, feeling that way, deserted by the hundreds. After checking on families, some returned, 
but only some 4,000 of the expected 11,000-man remnant of the Confederate Army of Tennessee made it to North Carolina. Meanwhile, Sherman kept his blue juggernaut rolling, but not at the speed he wanted. As in Georgia, his mobility was hindered by slaves who attached themselves to the federal columns. By the time Sherman's men neared the border to North Carolina, refugees numbered in the thousands. Wing Commander Major General Henry Slocum wrote, At times they were almost equal in number to the army they were following. Although many could forage or provide for themselves, Sherman complained they have clung to our skirts, impeded our movements, and consumed our food. As the month of February drew to a close, Sherman drove his two columns north, and Schofield's Union Force, the 23rd Corps, marched toward New Bern, North Carolina. They had 50 more miles to reach the planned Union rendezvous point, Goldsboro. Meanwhile, Johnston and Beauregard watched, probed, and waited. They hoped for an opportunity to punish an isolated federal column. In Georgia, Sherman had feasted off the land, and in South Carolina, he had given a long leash to men who foraged and destroyed. However, as his force entered North Carolina, the Ohioan, on Tuesday, March the 7th, issued General Order No. 8, which expressed the hope that every effort will be made to prevent any wanton destruction of property or any unkind treatment of civilians. Sherman believed they were marching into a state that had been reluctant to leave the Union. In other words, once in North Carolina, he hoped to draw a tighter rein on his men. Unlike his policy through Georgia and South Carolina, only one foraging party was to be raised per division. And that party was to be commanded by reliable officers who would be held strictly accountable for the conduct of their men. Only horses and food were to be requisitioned. Private dwellings were off limits, as were personal valuables. Still, issuing orders one thing, enforcing them another. Fearing the worst, the state of North Carolina braced itself. And so it was to be, in the first days of March 1865, Brevet Major General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick's cavalry were the first of Sherman's force to enter the Old North State. The first North Carolina town occupied was Wadesboro in Anson County. There, legitimate military targets were hit, grist mills, tanneries, Confederate stables. Then, despite Sherman's orders, civilians allowed by officers who looked the other way or who simply didn't care, barns, storehouses, and private homes were wrecked at gunpoint. Every so often, Joe Wheeler's Confederate cavalry did get a lick in. They did March the 7th at a crossing of the Yadkin P.D. River just outside of Rockingham in Richmond County. To add to Southern resistance, Joseph Johnston, down at his headquarters in Charlotte, redoubled his efforts. A daunting task, for when he arrived there, he had no staff, no supplies, and in reality, no army. To rectify the lack of men, he first issued a plea for soldiers knocked loose from their units to rejoin them. He ordered any and all to Fayetteville, then Smithville, which was some 30 miles north of Goldsboro. 
Johnson himself moved east with what he had on Saturday, March the 4th. Meanwhile, on the 8th and 9th, Sherman himself entered North Carolina under sheets of rain. In Scotland County's Laurenburg, the depot and repair shops were burned. And on the 9th, Lumberton in Robeson County was raided. However, it was at Monroe's Crossroads in the panhandle of Cumberland County, just northwest of Fayetteville, that Confederate resistance finally got a chance to take a bite out of the Federal advance. The clash pitted the South Carolinian Wade Hampton, who was reputed to be the richest man in the South. And small in stature, teetotaling, energetic, cocky, overambitious, and oversexed Judson Kilpatrick. His Union force camped the night of March the 10th, just west of present-day Fort Bragg. Captured information of Kilpatrick's whereabouts prompted Hampton to plan a first light strike the next morning. At dawn, Saturday the 11th, at a place, as we mentioned, Monroe's Crossroads, three Confederate columns of cavalry surprised the Federal encampment. The southern rush was so sudden that at Charles Monroe's white frame farmhouse, Kilpatrick's headquarters, Confederate horsemen were only some 20 yards away when Kilpatrick, awakened by the commotion, raced onto the front porch wearing only his boots and a nightshirt. Not recognizing him, a burly Confederate demanded, Where is General Kilpatrick? At that very moment, Kilpatrick spied a Union officer speeding away on a black mount and thinking quickly, spit out, There he goes, on that black horse. Confederates took the bait and gave chase, allowing Kilpatrick to escape. Although Hampton's Confederates had surprised the Union encampment, Federal numbers and Spencer repeating rifles decided the issue. Kilpatrick's men forced a Confederate withdrawal. Southern casualties numbered around 80 killed and 160 wounded, and the Union force suffered 20 killed and 83 wounded. But Hampton's attack did accomplish one thing. It cleared the road to Fayetteville, and therefore he was able to link his force up with other Confederates in the area. Later that same day, Sherman, like Lord Cornwallis of old, occupied Fayetteville. A committee met an angry Sherman as he entered town, angry because he had to clear the town before occupying it. Sherman's address was short and to the point. Gentlemen, blacks and cotton caused this war, and I wish them both in hell. On Wednesday, your mills will be broken up. Good morning. There was also another military objective in town, the Fayetteville Arsenal. Anticipating the Union force, some of the gun-making machinery had been dismounted and hidden in a local coal mine. Some powder, muskets, and shot had also been scurried away northwest to Greensboro. But what remained went up just as Sherman had promised. As he put it, I therefore shall burn it, blow it up with gunpowder, and then with rams knock down its walls. I take it for granted the United States will never again trust North Carolina with an arsenal to appropriate at her pleasure. In occupying Fayetteville, the city proved to be very pro-secesh. And it surprised Sherman, who noted, The city of Fayetteville was offensively rebellious, and therefore the town was open for looting. In surrounding areas, without any moderating officers, 
it was worse. Finally, Sherman's force moved on by crossing the Cape Fear on Wednesday, March the 15th. They did so in the by now familiar organization. The right wing's 15th and 17th Federal Corps under Howard and the left, the 14th and 20th under Slocum. Slocum's wing pushed Confederates under Major General Joseph Wheeler and Lieutenant General William Hardy, but near a small locale called Averisboro, Hardy dug in and offered battle. The two-day fight cost some 600 Confederate casualties and around 700 Federal. Even though Hardy withdrew, Averisboro's significance was that he held up Slocum's wing, the left wing, for 48 hours thus created a gap between the two federal wings. Confederate General Joe Johnston believed he had his opportunity and jumped at it. On Sunday the 19th, he struck, and thus began the greatest land battle fought on North Carolina soil. It was a warm and cloudless Sunday, the 19th of March, when federal soldiers in Sherman's left wing ran into a Confederate presence and testing it reported, those men don't drive worth a damn. Indeed, they did not. For at 2.45 in the afternoon, employing the rebel yell, the poor man's bagpipes, the American Civil War's last great Confederate infantry charge took place. The attack crumpled the Federal left, and the moment was ripe for a Confederate strike on the Union right. But the Southern element that was to make that attack was commanded by Braxton Bragg, who, to no one's surprise, blew the opportunity. As the day progressed, federal reinforcements neutralized Confederate gains, so much so that by dusk of the 19th, the lines were pretty much as they had been at the start of the fight. Meanwhile, federal couriers alerted Sherman, who was with the right wing, and by late afternoon of the next day, Sherman moved to reunite his army. The Battle of Bentonville was renewed Tuesday, the 21st, and when it came, Joe Johnston realized he was fighting for his army's life. 21,000 faced by some 60,000 Federals. That fear took heightened meaning when a reconnaissance led by Union Major General Joseph A. Maurer morphed into a concerted attack. Maurer's men broke through the thin Confederate left, and drove within musket range of Mill Creek Bridge, the only outlet for Confederate retreat. It was there that Hardy led a desperate but successful Confederate counterattack. In the first real Confederate resistance against Sherman since he left Atlanta, Confederate casualties at Bentonville were 3,440. Sherman suffered 1,527. In the despairing and futile fight, Johnston bought 72 hours, but once his Confederate force fell back, the blue force pushed on to Goldsboro to meet up with Schofield's 23rd Corps. A resigned Joseph E. Johnston reported to Lee, Sherman's course cannot be hindered by the small force I have. I can do nothing more than annoy him. On Thursday, March 23rd, Sherman and Major General John Schofield's armies did indeed unite in Goldsboro. The railroad to New Bern was nearly ready to go back into operation, and that meant Sherman's men would no longer have to forage. Though victorious, many in blue were ragged and barefoot, and there in Goldsboro they were issued new clothing, 
They also received their first mail in two months, 514 bags of it over a two-day period. Sherman now reassessed. He needed to confer with Grant, who had been behind fortifications so long that Sherman had half-joked that his friend and commander had become fossilized. Sherman left Goldsboro Saturday, March 25th. En route, he told soldiers, I'm going up to see Grant for five minutes, have it all chalked out for me, and then come back and pitch in. He arrived by steamer at City Point, Virginia on the 27th. The two greeted one another with grins, handshaking, and jokes. Indeed, an aide reported the two acted like two schoolboys coming together after a vacation. Eventually, the two moved to Grant's headquarters, where Sherman paid his respects to Mrs. Grant, and then, sitting around a campfire, shared stories of the march through the Carolinas. After about an hour, Grant mentioned the president was also at City Point, and they should call on him before dinner. The two found Lincoln sitting alone in the after cabin on the vessel River Queen. It was an historic meeting, the first time the three major players of the war together in the same room. Sherman described it as a good, long social visit. Sherman repeated stories from his campaign. They met again the next day and were joined by Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter. There, in the after cabin, Lincoln repeatedly expressed his desire that no more blood need be shed, but all three military men agreed there would probably be one or two more fights. Then a subject came up that was on everyone's mind. What would be the guidelines for surrender of Confederate military and political entities? Unless some policy was established, Union generals were likely to find themselves dealing with monumental issues and totally unprepared to do so. Sherman remembered Lincoln's wish for defeated Confederate soldiers and politicians. All he wanted of us was to defeat the opposing armies and to get the men composing the Confederate armies back to their homes and work on their farms and in their shops. As Lincoln continued, let them once surrender and reach their homes, they won't take up arms again. Let them go, officers and all. I want submission and not more bloodshed. And the president made clear that as soon as the fighting stopped, the people of the South, as he put it, would at once be guaranteed all their rights as citizens of a common country. I want no one punished. Treat them liberally all around. We want those people to return to their allegiance to the Union and submit to the laws. That afternoon, Sherman boarded a swift vessel for his return to Goldsboro. He was ready to complete his Carolinas campaign, and now was certain he knew exactly on what terms his commander-in-chief wanted him to finish it. Back in Goldsboro, the combined federal force of some 90 to 100,000 dominated North Carolina, and their presence prompted reaction from North Carolina's war governor, Zebulon B. Vance, who, aware that Sherman would inevitably march on Raleigh, prepared. He packed up and shipped the state's archives west to a site then known as Company Shops, today in the North Carolina Piedmont, the city of Burlington. On Monday, the 10th of April, Sherman moved toward Smithville, Pikeville, Beulah, and the south bank of the Neuse River. On Tuesday the 11th, Smithville was occupied. 
Governor Vance abandoned Raleigh around midnight of April the 12th. And as he did, he sought out two former governors of the state and asked them if they would go find Sherman and negotiate with him. After much trouble and humiliation, former North Carolina Governors David L. Swain and William A. Graham, dressed in antebellum coats and beaver hats, met Sherman late on the 12th. The two found Sherman most amicable. He fed them supper, entertained them with a concert, prepared bunks, and even signed an order that protected the governor and state property on the condition there would be no problems entering and occupying North Carolina's capital city. Greatly relieved, Swain and Graham returned to Raleigh on Thursday, April the 13th. It was a ghost town. But to their horror, they also found Wheeler's mounted troopers looting local shops. Exhibits and museums were vandalized and maps, records, and documents destroyed. Finally, as the last of them fell back to the west, on that same day, under a chilly rain, Mayor William Harrison met Union troops a mile east of town, and Raleigh was formally surrendered. Kilpatrick's cavalrymen led the Union advance into town, and then the unthinkable occurred. One of Wheeler's men not only lingered, but still had some fight in him. A young lieutenant from Texas by the name of Walsh drew his revolver and with goddamn them fired five shots at Kilpatrick's direction. Ridden down, the young Texan pleaded for enough time to pen a quick letter to his wife. He was denied and summarily strung up and hanged. Amazingly, given Kilpatrick's nature, Raleigh did not suffer reprisal. Around 8 p.m. that Thursday, Sherman himself entered North Carolina's capital and made his headquarters in the vacated governor's mansion. As he did, what was now left of the Confederacy in North Carolina was centered some 75 miles west in Greensboro. At the beginning of March, the town in the western Piedmont of North Carolina numbered some 2,000. Now, with Confederate collapse, Greensboro had swelled to some 100,000, including refugees from eastern North Carolina, survivors from Bentonville, thousands of hungry, sick, and desperate soldiers from Lee's by-now-surrendered army, and the ragtag 40,000 men of the dispirited Army of Tennessee that would move in between April the 16th and 27th. To make matters worse... Union Major General George Stoneman's cavalry was expected to close, if you will, the trap from the West. On Tuesday, the 11th of April, two days before Sherman entered Raleigh, another desperate party entered Greensboro. It was a fleeing Confederate President Jefferson Davis and what was left of his official family, a government in exile. Joe Johnston arrived the next day, April the 12th, and there... He and Beauregard compared military notes. Both agreed the Confederacy was finished. Three Confederate cabinet members and the two generals met with Davis that day in a 12 by 16 foot room in a house on South Elm Street in Greensboro. It was a Wednesday, the fourth anniversary of the firing on Fort Sumter. There, the president wanted an army of deserters and draft dodgers to march to Alabama, where they would join forces with combined elements of two small Confederate armies. 
When he finished, Johnston and Beauregard polled the group as to the merit of the president's plan. Only Secretary of State Judah Benjamin was in favor. About that time, Captain Bob Lee, the son of Robert E. Lee, arrived, and when asked his opinion, he favored continuing the war. Davis smiled and then was handed a note. Opened, it informed him that Lee had surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to Lieutenant General U.S. Grant back on the 9th of April. President Smile went away. The next day, Thursday, April the 13th, the day Raleigh was occupied, Davis held a council of war. Convened, the president asked his generals, Beauregard and Johnston, to give their professional opinions. There was a long pause, then Johnston began. In short, choppy, staccato sentences, he began, My views are, sir, that our people are tired of the war, feel themselves whipped, and will not fight. Our country is overrun, its military resources greatly diminished, while the enemy's military power and resources were never greater and may be increased to any extent desired. We cannot place another large army in the field and cut off as we are from foreign intercourse. I do not see how we could maintain it in fighting condition if we had it. My men are daily deserting in large numbers and are stealing my artillery teams to aid their escape to their homes. Since Lee's defeat, they regard the war as at an end. If I march out of North Carolina, her people will leave my ranks. It will be the same as I proceed through South Carolina and Georgia. I shall expect to retain no man beyond the byroad or cow path that leads to his home. My small force is melting away like snow before the sun. When he finished, the room was filled with a roaring silence. Davis sat stoically. He listened to the entire monologue with his head down, gaze absently fixed while he folded and unfolded a piece of paper. Then, when asked, Beauregard agreed, and there was another long silence. Davis then asked, What do you propose? The reply, Open talks. Davis balked, then gave in. He had to. Sherman's force, which was now in and around Raleigh, outnumbered Johnston's Confederate force 12 to 1, and that ratio would soon increase to 15 to 1. On Saturday, the 15th of April, a dejected Davis, the leader of a collapsed country, prepared to leave by wagon over unpaved roads south for Salisbury, North Carolina. That was the scene in Greensboro. Back to the east, over the span of time just described, there had been heavy rain when Sherman's last recorded skirmishes took place on Thursday, April 13th, and Friday the 14th at Morrisville, and on Saturday the 15th at rain-swollen New Hope Creek, about eight miles east of Chapel Hill. Wheeler's men fell back to a line of rifle pits just east of the little village, home to the University of North Carolina. There, they waited for the inevitable encounter. But it never came. On Sunday, April the 16th, Wheeler received orders to pull out and did so that very afternoon. And so, around sunset, via the Raleigh Road, federal horsemen appeared and thus began the Union occupation of Chapel Hill, the last town to fall 
to Sherman's army. As that drama unfolded, couriers raced back and forth between Sherman and Johnston. The topic? A ceasefire and talk. Sherman communicated he would hold his infantry at Morrisville and cavalry at Chapel Hill and that he would be open to a meeting on Monday the 17th at a point equidistant between Hillsboro and Durham Station. And so they did. Under white flags, the two warriors met and proceeded to find a place where they might talk. Nearby, the very modest log residence of Daniel Bennett who gave permission for the two generals to use his home. As Johnston and Sherman dismounted, Mrs. Bennett and her four children moved to one of the outbuildings. The two in uniform entered, and so began negotiations that would, after the capture of Atlanta, the march to the sea, and the Carolinas campaign, finally lead to the surrender of the greatest number of Confederate soldiers during the American Civil War. William T. Sherman had hoped to shorten, to end the war, in his marches from Chattanooga to Atlanta, across Georgia, and through the Carolinas. He had indeed done just that. Once again, our world has been brought to yet another brink. Ominous events in Eastern Europe have brought fear and uncertainty. And once again, diplomats rush in to try to allay those grave concerns and hopefully avert war. From these anxious times we return over a century and a half ago to a similar context of time to November of 1861 when the seizure of two Confederate envoys aboard a British mail packet in Bahama Channel brought Abraham Lincoln's government, already embroiled in a desperate civil war, eyeball to eyeball with Queen Victoria's Great Britain. I hope you'll join us for the high-stakes diplomacy that tumbled forth from an incident known as the Trent Affair. We're very pleased to make note that we have yet another one to join those who have been so kind to be a patron of this particular podcast. Stuart from Louisville in the bluegrass state of Kentucky, thank you so very much for your kindness and for your thoughts. We welcome you. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.